0: Every Arizona homeowner's best friend.
1: Come on around back, Arizona. It's Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the House. Your Saturday morning tradition since 1988 for Saturday of this month. So we've got our farm fresh hour. If you're following along in your Rosie on the House homeowner handbook, you know we're talking about emerging crops. we got Julie Murphy of the Arizona Farm Bureau in studio to take the reins.
2: Yes, I'm ready. I'm excited. It's a Saturday morning, and it's September, so my expectation is it's going to start cooling down. And our last two days
1: have been wonderful. They have been. Right? I'll take this the whole rest yes. of the month if you keep it coming.
2: My dad, the retired farmer, said yes, instead of... Reporting in two tenths of an inch of rain, he said, Julie, where I'm at, we had three inches. So it's all good.
1: The goal with this hour is to connect you, the Arizona homeowner, with whatever's coming off of our farm fresh farms and ranches, yes. our local commodities, and connecting you with the local food sources and supporting local agriculture. And most of the time, we actually have a specific crop, right? A harvest. But uh, you're taking us on a different kind of a hayride this I, morning.
2: <laughs> I am. And hay hay is com- is uh, organic, and we can turn it into compost. And that's actually what we're going to talk about today. CTS Green Waste Recycling out in Queen Creek, I think, right? Or we'll say the East Valley. Yeah, it kind of East makes Valley. the Queen Creek
3: border oh, area.
2: There you go. Mm. So I have Alicia Ellis, the husband and wife team of Alicia Ellis and Justin Perry with me. So we are going to be talking about green waste and recycling and composting. Is that an emerging crop? No, but the Perry family, a generational farm family, can talk a lot about our Arizona crops and uh Romy, you and I will be real a little bit more specific on those emerging crops because we are working on it. Our farmers and ranchers in Arizona are always looking for the better way, whether that be technology or a crop that's low water use and they can introduce it in, into their farming operation. So real fun. But for me to shut up, it's now time for me to hear the Perry generational farm family story. So, Justin, give us kind of the overview of your farm family here in Arizona.
4: Wow, that goes back a a long ways. Um, Both sides of my family, actually. My mom's side of the family immigrated here into Arizona, late 1800s, kind of settled in the White Mountain area of Arizona. Uh, My dad's family, same thing, late 1800s in the Flagstaff area. Oh, cool. So up north. Yep. Okay. Just homesteaders, you know, small ranchers, small farmers.
2: And growing some of the basic crops at that time and... So, and then you guys were inspired, you and a brother, how many siblings do you have? Two. Two, okay. So, Arizona Farm Bureau has a tendency to know Jason a little bit more than you, only because he kind of got really involved in Young Farmers and Ranchers. So, Jason, if you're listening, props to you, thanks for all you do. And he does a lot of ag production on leased land in a lot of these urbanized areas that are starting to go urban instead of ag. But you kind of partnered with him, and you do. So tell us about your business.
4: Yeah, so I, I did partner with my brother about 12 years ago, and we kind of started this <coughs> sorry regenerative farm operation um, with the focus being on soil health with the use of organics. Um, it it's kind of funny how it started. There was a, an orchard that somebody had had let go. The trees had died, and the owners of that property wanted to get it back into production. Um, so we d- went in, did the tree removal, processed the old trees, and got that ground back into production. That was really the catalyst right there for for the business that we have now, which is CTS Green Waste Recycling. And the thought being, where do we go with all this material? You know that that organic content. I mean it. it has a nutrient value. There's energy in it. And I was just really, like, trying to find a better use for it. So we took it back to what we always knew, which was agriculture, crop production, and found a way to just incorporate that into the soil. And that really became the basis of of CTS Green Waste Recycling, was capturing that energy, taking, you know, landscaper waste, you know, that's all organic and keeping it out of the landfill and putting it into a better use
2: that's awesome so i think you told me the business is is in its 12th 13th year so what is the model it, if i'm a landscaper obviously and i don't it'd be cooler to know you guys and deliver it there so i get that and they come to your location so what exactly is the business model
4: um, we just charge a fee per ton to okay. bring the material in, and it's that simple. And you've Drive got... Drive-in, way.
1: Palm leaf, Yeah. <laughs> Every green waste recycling plant that there is across the state, none of them can do anything with palm leaf fronds. Have you all figured out the palm frond yet? <laughs> we have. We oh, do really? take palm. Okay, tell, tell me about that, because the oiliness and it doesn't decompose well, and that all... Every, every transition station, that, that gets dar- dropped off and that just ends up in the dump. But you all have a recycling method for that. We do.
4: It's, it is complicated. It's, it does not process very well. It's a tough material to handle. But at the end of the day, it will decompose, typically at a slower rate. But once it's in the farm field, once it's in the ground, that decomposition process is going to happen, right? It, even if it is slower. So we are able to take it. I mean at the end of the day it's it's just carbon and it will decompose. That's
2: so
1: amazing. do you have it separated from the other materials or you just include it with the, the we other, in, we everything it. else?
4: Yeah, it has to actually be mixed in with the other material. Just when we're putting it through the grinder, if you just try and grind straight palm, it will cause problems. Like the grinder does not like it.
1: So you you have to have all that other material in there to help get it chewed up. Exactly. So
4: you're running the, the harder woodier material through as well just to keep the mill and the grinder clean and keep keep the palm moving through you know
2: and so once you've received that green waste and you go through the composting process then you're delivering i mean i can't buy it retail right it's just for farms so you're delivering these in semi-truck loads yes and all over
4: Just the East Valley, just to to our farm operation. We farm about 500 acres in my brother's farm operation. Okay.
2: So there's, I noticed on your website, uh, if anyone listening, if you just Google CTS green waste recycling, you can go to the website. But one of the pictures shows this big lineup of all people, all sorts of people, shapes and sizes. I actually can deliver my green waste as a homeowner if I have a truckload of it. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a big lineup of all these trucks that were delivering their green waste. So, kind of cool. If you're
1: a homeowner with a truckload of green waste, I think you probably got some unhappy neighbors, too.
2: (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Or maybe you landscaped and cleaned up their yard as well. So, now, I am really curious, Alicia and Justin, how you guys met. Because, Alicia, you come from a completely different background. You're a professor at ASU.
3: Right. Give us a lowdown. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a whole lot of background in, in uh, farming until I met him. Um, actually, I moved out here from Washington, D.C. about uh, almost a decade ago now, which which seems crazy. But um, after college, I, I went into the military. I was an uh, officer in the Air Force. Um, in both uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, came back, got out, went to grad school, and then I took a job in Washington, D.C. I worked for the Treasury Department for about a year, and then I worked for the state department in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. Um, And then one day I uh, picked up and moved out to Arizona um, because I, I, you know, I don't know. I I think I wanted to marry a cowboy. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) and they are out here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I did. I ended up getting my Ph.D. here at ASU. And then at the same time as I was finishing, um, there was a a, a new thing kind of developing. It started in Washington, D.C. It was called the Center on the Future of War at the time. Now it's uh, going through some kind of some growth and rebrand. It's now the Future, future Security Initiative. Um, but they housed the educational piece of what they do at ASU, which was very fortunate for me because I got to sort of bring together this love for Arizona and, uh, you know, wanting to live where there was, just, you know, more space and sunshine and, and be part of the kind of the farming community, uh, but also do what, what I did all this time. So it's kind of cool to see my, my background kind of dovetail in some unexpected ways. Um,
2: by the way, thank you for your service you. and uh, for all of our military. So, how did you meet Justin then? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you she wanna said you on to marry a cowboy, so <laughs> let's see out. Out in the East Valley, what are the, what are the big uh, dance bars? <laughs> yeah, uh,
3: actually, <laughs> or you the go funny. to rodeo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: you, you yeah, enter. You just join the Farm Bureau and started <laughs> attending meetings,
3: especially young farmer and rancher. <laughs> we actually did end up meeting through family. Um, well, and the the irony is, I actually do have some farming background in my family. If you go back a couple generations, my would have been my great grandfather, I think. Um, He owned a farm in Illinois, and there's enough people kind of, you go like six degrees of relation, like people who are related to me probably farm about half of Illinois at this point, but um, the government actually took my great-grandfather's farm uh, during World War II under eminent domain uh, and built an underground bomb factory there. Really? Uh, And then after World War II was over, it got decommissioned, he bought the farm back, and they actually left some of the bombs behind and had to come back and clean it up later. So I like to say that my family's been in both farming and geopolitics for at least a few generation so, <laughs> so if the
1: bomb factory was underground wouldn't you want them to keep farming on top to <laughs> continue the illusion that there's nothing going on here um
3: that's they, actually they they did leave uh they did leave it that way you wouldn't have known what was underground to to look at it um that's I've done a lot of traveling around the Midwest. I'm actually kind of surprised you can you can still go out and see like um, decommissioned nuclear weapons out in the middle of nowhere. And you, you can imagine like if you're a farmer just kind of going through there, and you feel you look over and it's coming up, you're like, oh, well, I guess that's the I guess I might as well not finish this this plot.
1: Completely <laughs> off topic, but we're going to a break here, so I'll ask the question: Have you ever been to any of the nuclear silos around Arizona?
3: Yeah, just oh, um, we haven't been down to the one near Tucson yet, but we did just get back from the Minuteman silo. In South Dakota a couple weeks ago. Justin oh, and I wow. took the whole family out there. But that wasn't your original question. It was how we met. It, it actually was family. We had some family uh, that lived here in Arizona, and they were actually kind of pushing us to uh, meet, and uh, eventually they got us uh, in a room together, and the rest is history.
1: Hello, I'm Joe Campbell, one of the owners of Arizona Painting Company. Happy Labor Day from Rosie on the House. In our Farm Fresh segment, not that we know anything about labor in this topic.
2: Yes. So <laughs> Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to everyone. So I did want to had a couple other questions for you, Alicia, from your relationship as a professor at ASU. Because it relates to geopolitics. It relates to food security. Uh, You've got some insights on what's going on with Ukraine. We're kind of taking this at 30,000 feet, which we don't always, but it's really critical that we understand how our food security is so
3: tied into the farmers
2: and ranchers like Justin Perry and his family.
3: Actually, I think some of the um, research interests – uh, developed out of my involvement with this, you know, helping my husband run a business in the in the agricultural industry and seeing how enmeshed it was in, um, in politics um, and seeing uh, just the difficulty of trying to produce something like beef. That was one of the things that we did uh, for quite a while. And I ended up writing my dissertation, actually, on the link between who controls land and the production that happens on that land and how uh, economic development unfolds in urban centers as a result, and then the political systems that that emerge from that. Um, so really kind of tied um, everything into together. But in the last few years, um, we're really seeing uh, geopolitics and, and geoeconomics uh, reemerge with the rise of China and and some of the challenges that that presents to the U.S. and then the resulting focus on, on critical supply chains, which includes food security. So this was kind of a natural path for me, given my background in both. Um, but you, you asked me earlier, particularly about um, Ukraine. Um, now, global food insecurity um, was really a problem even before that it had been rising for, for years. And then the supply chain disruptions that came with COVID really exacerbated it. And then food prices spiked after Russia's invasion to an all time high. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. And it's it's we've seen the impact here in the U.S. too. Um, I mean, the first one is, uh, you know, they The blockade of the the ports in the Black Sea um, and Ukraine exports some key food staples like wheat and maize and in fact between Russia and Ukraine they supplied about a quarter of the the world's wheat supply so that's not a a small impact there. 25%. Yeah. yeah. Um, But then you also had this sort of additional, the the third order effects from the response, um, namely um, Russian natural gas supply to Europe Um, and Natural gas is a key ingredient in the production of synthetic fertilizers, right? And it's uh, not an exaggeration to say that nitrogen-based fertilizer is really the basis of the modern world. This is why we can, you know, sustain the population on the planet. This is uh, why 1% of the U.S. population can feed the rest. Um, uh, and that natural gas plays a, a really key role in how fertilizer is made. So um, when that supply got, got cut off, um, you saw... On top of not being able to export the fertilizer that comes out of Ukraine, now we're having trouble producing it at the same levels we could in Europe. Um, so you saw shortages here. In fact, I, I talked with uh, Jason, my brother-in-law, about it. Um, and directly after that, he uh, you know couldn't get enough, and it affected his crop yield by, I think he said, about a third. Really? Uh, right. And, of course, he produces a lot of the hay for the Arizona dairies. And now, you know, the the price of their inputs are rising. And, um, you know, you ultimately see that in the grocery store prices, right? Everything that the dairies produce, uh, sour cream, milk, ice cream, all my favorite things. (laughs) You know, um, those prices are going to go up along with with everything else. Um,
2: And, Justin, you were mentioning during the break that because of that more difficult access – To the fertilizer that was needed. And and the window is narrow. It's not like you can tell the plants to stop growing until you get the fertilizer. So (laughs) you guys had, you truly had some of those experiences in the last several years. We did. You know, there's an optimum time to plant
4: that's, you know, going to maximize your yield. And if you miss that window, you know, there is no going back.
2: Wow. Yeah. Until next year. (laughs) Until next year. If you can
1: survive till then. (laughs)
2: And, you know, we do produce a lot of uh, natural fertilizers thanks to our animal ag sector. And that's why we have to have our animal, one of the reasons why we have to have our animal ag sector, because they can produce a lot of manure. And so there's other natural forms, but we can never produce it to the level we have to do on the global level to get this fertilizer from natural gas, correct? Is that Am I saying the right thing there, Alicia?
3: Right. Actually, I think one of the the cool things about what um, what we do at, at CTS Greenways and what uh, Justin does is that it does offset some of the need for um, the synthetic, you know, petrochemically derived fertilizers. Um, and Justin can probably talk more about kind of the the science behind that and, and how that works. Um, but he he looks at it and, and goes, "Oh, cool! I can do something like really great for the environment, and I can do uh, something really great for local farmers." And I look at it and I go, "Cool! Can we reduce our reliance on Russia?"
2: <laughs> yeah, and uh, and de- being the geopolitical professor that you are, it, we probably that's a little bit of a difficult question to an- answer, but. So why should we in America care? Because when I hear some of the things you're saying, some of it's slightly over my head. <laughs> I mean, it's critical, it's important, but why should we care?
3: Well, I mean, first of all, there's there's no country that hasn't been affected by rising food prices. Um, right? I mean, he, here it's more of an indirect effect. If it, um, the first people that are going to feel it are... The, the MENA region right. Uh, right they've been particularly hard hit um, in part because the conditions are already here but you're certainly gonna see rising food prices it's Everywhere. affecting yep, it's affecting American family budgets and uh, we'll
1: pause right there we can do a lot but we can't stop the clock <laughs> Welcome back to our Farm Fresh Hour. We've got Julie Murphy in studio, as always, when we talk farm-fresh commodities with the Arizona Farm Bureau. You've been the spokeswoman now for...
2: In October, it will be 17 years since I've been with Arizona Farm Bureau, and I have loved every minute of it.
1: Well, congratulations, and we enjoy having you in studio. And you always bring a special guest in. We're talking emerging crops, but a lot more than that today. You've got some great guests.
2: (laughs) Yes, um, we have... Um, Justin Perry and Alicia Ellis with CTS Green Waste Recycling and Rosie you had a good question for them
0: Uh, Off air air, we were talking a little bit about uh, the geopolitical implications of the price of my milk Yes. (laughs) And what an intriguing story. But I do have a question for y'all, and I need y'all to help save my reputation. About five years ago, I mentioned, and I shouldn't mention anything in the gardening hour because I can't grow a thing, that I converted from ground compost to compost containers in the attempt my backyard backs up to a desert wash to eliminate kind of the rodent intrusions and the rabbits and everything else from coming into the garden. So I went to container gardening. Uh, On that recommendation, some of my friends did too. They've all sent me pictures of their container composter now in the trash. (laughs) I'll bet you in the last four years, I've put five tons of compost into that container compost. And I don't think I've harvested a tablespoon.
2: So, so what's what your if, recommendation? What am I doing just wrong? A...
0: Or more importantly, what can homeowners know about their backyard compost to really make it work? I'm going to go back to the ground method, but you help me. How can we How can we help the homeowners?
4: Wow, okay. There, there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> the more? biggest thing is, is aeration. So if you're not, if the container just isn't allowing enough air, enough oxygen, into that compost, that's going to be an issue right there, oh. right? So different microbes need different things. The good microbes that you want in your compost are going to live in a temperature range of about 90 to 130 degrees, okay? Maybe 140, and they do need nitrogen as well. That's one thing you, if you see, like, slow decomposition, add a little bit of nitrogen. You know, right. if you're trying to stay completely organic, that's going to be tough. You can substitute um, grass clippings, things like that. So what you may have is is high-carbon material and low-nitrogen material, and that's going to impede your composting as well. So you need nitrogen, you need oxygen, and you need to keep that aerated.
0: And if your compost tends to get too slimy? <laughs> Aeration, again. Aeration. Aeration. Okay. Aeration. Yep. <laughs> All right. Very Give good.
2: it some air, brother. It's a living organism, right? I mean, soil is what my dad used to correct me when I was a little kid. I said dirt and he said no it's soil it's a living organism right i mean all the little the little biomes and stuff so on a brief point with the emerging crops um, i want to identify for our listeners that arizona can grow approximately 240 different crops almost everything with the exception of soybeans anybody can anybody guess why we don't grow soybeans like the midwest does because of the heat the pods will pop in the heat before they're fully mature. So we stay away from soybeans, but so emerging crops in Arizona is an ever ongoing opportunity. A few things to consider. Uh, We are researching and investigating the potential and benefits of YULI, which is uh, a low water use crop. Some of my farmers tell me it's hard to start Uh, this quote-unquote emerging crop has been emerging for at least the last 12 years because the market has to be developed. Fortunately, Bridgestone, one of our tire companies, is contracting with some of the farmers. So there's more potential with this crop than some of the others. The easiest thing, because that's kind of our theme for this month that I like to highlight with emerging crops, we're always going to be looking at better ways, other opportunities. And so crops might be some of it. But I kind of also want to segue because of always looking at the better way to do things. And I feel like that's what the Perry family does. I think, Alicia, what you do, even as a professor at ASU, we're always looking for the better way. So on this geopolitics thing, what are some of the other issues that we as Arizonans should at least be sensitive to, even though that may not be our area of expertise?
3: Yeah, um, I think everybody did... um See how it it ends up affecting everyone. Though we we live in a world that is um, very interdependent, right? So some uh, some event anywhere has effects everywhere. Um, think back, for instance, just a few years ago at the at the height of the pandemic, how quickly we started seeing shortages in the grocery stores, um, especially with beef. Why? Well, that industry was um, over consolidated, right? All of the production is really going through the big four. Um, and so you're starting to see a little bit different conversation about it now, not just about economic efficiency, but about resiliency, um, and I think that that is going to be even more important going forward. And it's not just food that that is undergoing this sort of uh, reexamination. Right.
1: And as you talk about beef, Julie, you've had a number of different uh, beef growers, Correct. cattle raisers that do a lot of you know direct to consumer. Right. Whether it's a quarter, a, a side, a whole cow, you know. That having those resources locally are huge. And we've been talking about CTS green waste, but you'll also have uh, Perry Landon cattle. You all raise cattle as well. Do you do, uh, could I buy like a half a slab from you?
3: Well, um, six months ago, you could. We actually did have to get get out of that. And that, again, goes back to sort of over consolidation. Very, very difficult for the small um, grower to find production uh, facilities here. Uh, somebody who can process and, and butcher the meat. Um, so one of our, our biggest issues was finding a place to do that, that, you know, we could count on and do it regularly. And that was one of the reasons we and actually ended up selling off the rest of the cows. And we're not doing that piece of it anymore. We're kind of trying to focus on this um, sustainable soil health piece of the operation. And, and that's something that allows us to have uh, a... I think a larger effect That's something that we can do at a commercial scale um, and help other growers as well. Uh, so it's, it's a better, I think, future for us. And
1: if I should have known that ahead of time, I apologize. No. <laughs> let me just say, then update your website.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'll put that. Uh, it's number 129,000 on my to-do list. <laughs> yeah. and, and I will say
2: uh, the that's what all of our retail beef producers are saying. And sometimes – They have to shut down, even if it's temporarily, because they just don't have the processing. So then they go through their normal market, which is more of the auctions. Just as an example, during the pandemic, Fill Your Plate, prior to that, had 20 to 25 beef producers. During the pandemic, because everybody was so literally hungry to purchase directly from our ranchers, all of a sudden we exploded to about 45 to 50 beef producers on Fill Your Plate, now, that's kind of backed off because we just did a check of all of our beef producers on Fill Your Plate. By the way, it's the most updated. And there were about easily six to ten of them that said, guess what, we're no longer in the retail part of it because we're having a difficult time with having available regional processing plants. So, But one of the things I do want to get back to, Justin, so I'm curious about your conversations, especially at the end of the day when it comes to understanding what these food supply chain issues are and then what you do with your business. They've got to be interesting conversations, Justin. What, what's your take on them?
4: <laughs> oh, yeah, we have, we have some pretty lively discussions. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's nice to kind of get the political take on it from her and then looking at what I do, you know, starting out at this kind of small scale Um, But I will say, like, my brother and I are one of the few commercial traditional farmers that have kind of incorporated a soil health program on this scale, at least out here in in the western United States. Typically, that's something that would be relegated to an organic operation. You know, you're going to have a a heavy organic use. For us, it just made sense. Um, It just kind of seemed like the right thing to do. But like we talked about marketing the beef, there's also an issue there with with marketing the crops that we would grow in this regenerative or this sustainable fashion there there's really no designation there there's no label there in order to do that versus if you go full organic you have that label behind you maybe you get a premium or something for for what you're producing whereas my brother and i there's really no designation there's no financial incentive there to do that so that's been one of the challenges is how do we get out there and tell our story as producers to the consumer and let them know you know how we do it this regenerative this sustainable operation and how that affects them in a positive way
2: has jason been able able to track yield improvements at all from application of the green waste compost that you manage or i mean what's been his commentary or takeaway from this whole because basically you're kind of being end to end i mean you're providing a lot of the organic matter that he puts on his field to grow his crops and your crops too because I know that you also are farming.
4: You know a lot of the benefits are are just they're observational right? Okay. Um, We haven't really been able to track yield data like we would like to you know that comes down to just time, lack of funding, you know the expense and increased costs of, of soil testing and and having somebody track all that data. Um, We're moving forward with some programs through NRCS right now, and I'm hoping that's really going to help cover some of those costs so that we can actually start to quantify these benefits and see that data.
2: Okay, ASU and U of A. I know. I was just
3: going to say, in fact, we just leased that 500-acre farm. Uh, We're rehabbing it. It's a great opportunity to kind of start with something from scratch and be able to measure all these cool things. We're doing, you know, the carbon offset, the, you know, improved water retention, the crop yields, everything. So I'm currently seeking research partners if, you know, the School of Sustainability is interested or, yeah.
2: I think there would be some good young students that might pursue that. And I We know that in the desert, in fact, uh, Dr. Jeff Silvertooth from the University of Arizona, we had a four-part series on Arizona Farm Bureau's Talk to a Farmer Friday, and he was highlighting our soil is actually, because it's alluvial soils, it's been brought in from over the millennia from rivers and stuff like that. So all it needs is, to his point, a lot of times is water, aeration, and um good quality but one of the things he pointed out it's a little bit harder in arizona because our temperatures are so high to keep that organic matter in the soil so one of the things that you're doing especially with this partnership with your brother is adding a lot of that organic matter can you speak to that a little bit more
4: yeah absolutely so the temperature out here does play a, a big role in that it's, it's hard to keep the carbon in the soil it's hard to keep that organic content in the soil um you know this this how these soils were built here in the, in the Phoenix area, uh, Tucson, you know, Casa Grande, all those areas, that's kind of this system of, of fires and floods that's been happening for almost 10,000 years. Okay, we, we suppress the fires now, we've, we've dammed the rivers, that, that process doesn't exist anymore. So the reality is with what we do at CTS Green Waste Recycling, it's, we're, we're mimicking that cycle that existed for that long. We're bringing that organic content into the soil that's constantly being depleted because of the heat.
2: Is it fair for me to say if I'm a landscaper and yeah, I have to pay per ton for you to take my green waste, but am I, in a very small way maybe, I'm contributing to that whole cycle of soil health, growing healthy plants? I mean, what would you say or speak to with customers that are considering, you know, I'm gonna quit sending this to a landfill? I need to talk to Justin.
4: <laughs> you know, everybody's got to watch their costs. So that's that's a big thing in any business. Um, our, our rates are pretty reasonable. They're pretty competitive with, with any landfill. So we have some requirements. I mean, we are strictly organic. It is not a landfill. That's not what we do. Right. It has to be something that we can use and and run through this kind of agricultural composting program. So if it doesn't fit that, that criteria, that's tough. And, and it really just becomes about getting people to make that separation and understand recycling, not as, not as a whole, but you have different items that need to be recycled in different ways.
2: And separated from each other. You had a question well, for me.
1: Well, you know, it still costs the landscaper to go dump their load at the landfill. Does it cost any more to come to your lot and, and empty the dump trailer? It,
4: it really doesn't you know it's geography you know plays plays a role in that to some extent if if they're just too far away if you know the time not close to enough get there. sure exactly
1: and so where is the drop site Sossman and elliot so
4: we are in the, the east valley
1: you never disappoint, Julie. You always bring in great guests that have different perspectives, different takes. Even when we have repeat guests, you know, the Curry's, the cars, they've all been on multiple times. It's always something new to learn. And, you know, we just love connecting the, you know, the, the local homeowners to our, ag- because, you know, e- even though there's a big global implication, you know, so much of it is done just right here in our right. backyard.
2: It is. And well, the, the more
1: we can support that, the closer our food source is and the more resilient we are against, you know, whatever the heck they're doing out there.
2: Right. Well, thank you. Bless you. I I just love, again, what I do. And I'm so proud of my farmers and ranchers here in Arizona. On the break, Justin, we were talking about something that you and Jason are involved in, the organization or the group.
4: Yeah, it's a group called the Soil Carbon Initiative. And what they do is they take growers that are, Kind of doing these regenerative or sustainable operations, and they help you find a market for what you're producing, so they're really out there trying to tell your story um, you know what makes your operation unique and how it's sustainable and and then really kind of connect you with with the public maybe or or buyers and that's really been a challenge you know we're we're always just busy trying to keep the wheels turning we're We're not very good at marketing as farmers sometimes, so
2: sure. Well, I, it, that, I have heard of that organization, So, and it's a good organization. So, Just like Arizona Farm Bureau, which causes me to ask you, why has your family always been so involved? I mean, Jason was heavy with the Young Farmer and Rancher program, and, uh, of course, probably until he aged out, but compared to me, he's still young. <laughs> so what, what's motivated that? I'm just kind of curious. You know, Farm Bureau has always been an advocate for producers,
4: and when you talk about agricultural production and being in that business, it's such a small segment of the, the population that I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there about what farmers do. Um, you know, people maybe look at your operation as an inconvenience or they don't understand why your tractors are on the road, things like that. Farm Bureau has always kind of have had that advocacy for the producer in the sense that they can educate the public, whether it's going into schools to talk to elementary kids, whether it's reaching out to you know, state senators, you know, that kind of legislative part of of the political
2: process and trying to help educate our lawmakers as well. Do you have any last comments and insights for our homeowners that are trying to compost? I thought the solutions you gave earlier were brilliant, and a big part of it is the aeration or give it some more oxygen so it can do its job, but anything else? You, you kind know, of if, covered it. <laughs> yeah,
4: if if you don't want to keep it totally organic, don't don't be afraid to use a little bit of nitrogen. That's really what we do in our operation is this balance between, you know, organic and the synthetic use, creating an offset, but being able to use both actually, you know, helps us keep that productivity
1: up. And this may be a longer answer than we have time for, but when you said if you don't want to keep it totally organic, add nitrogen. How how is nitrogen not organic?
2: I know. It's uh, like, a, like gas. a
1: synthetic organic.
4: Um like a synthetically produced nitrogen. But you know feed a little ammonium It's nitrate Synthetically or produced from a natural, natural materials. It is um it but it it's very it is fossil fuel derived. You know, if you're talking about ammonium nitrate production, you're talking about a lot of natural gas use.
1: Which is natural gas, meaning it's naturally in part of the earth. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> it's, it's pulled out of you know. It's it's not this foreign alien substance it's it's part of our
2: well i was told that a lot of it came from the dinosaurs they contributed it by tur- turning into petroleum and
1: yeah i don't buy reason... that one <laughs> i know, you know I how don't... many dinosaurs <laughs> but... there would have needed to be to <laughs> <know>. supply the <laughs> amount of fuel we've burned over the last hundred years well there wasn't and, that many dinosaurs and that or, fossils all...
2: yeah exactly and or as wording. much natural gas now that we have discovered with some of the new technologies too so
1: well, if you would like to support the local agate, it's so easy. You can go to the Arizona Farm Bureau's website, fillyourplate.org, sign up to become a member. It's only $60 a year. Right. And that easily pays for itself if you pay attention, you follow the newsletter. You can go to, if you buy a vehicle from Sanderson, 400 or $500 off. Right. So for $60, if you're buying a new vehicle, and you save $450 right there, that by itself, face but there's so many other benefits there's a lot of benefits you on follow the along website and pay attention
2: at Arizona Farm Bureau and you know we love our members there's 26,000 of them both farm and non-farm members so thank you as always
1: and we look forward to having you in studio next week I did not pull it up uh what's our topic next month do you know golly gee whiz I haven't <laughs> checked
2: it but I promise you I'll be prepared <laughs> it, it'll
1: be in our homeowner handbook you can check it there I Uh, was not quite on the ball there. Julie Murphy, Arizona Farm Bureau. FillYourPlate.org.